Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 89 on the Practicology Podcast. We are so glad you joined us today. This is episode three in a three-part study of the subject of deconstruction. And as we're going to find out today, it's also a study of reconstruction. Mike, two weeks ago, you took us to Psalm 73, and we walked through Asaph's deconstruction story. And this week, you're going to tell us yours, and I'm glad that you're deconstruction story doesn't end with deconstruction. There's reconstruction as well. Last week we focused on the issue of people who have walked away from the faith, but I praise the Lord that you are still walking in faith. Yeah, uh, I'm so thankful to the Lord for preserving me. Uh, Remember from Asaph that his story was a deconstruction story in the sense that he did seriously doubt a core doctrine of the faith, and that core doctrine was the goodness of God. It's pretty fundamental. But in the end, God preserved him, and he ended up reaffirming the goodness of God in a way that was more firm than ever he did before. So, so what changed then? Well, his earlier view of God did not prepare him well for the realities of life that he would encounter. His earlier faith was overly simplistic, lacking a nuance. It didn't account for the complexities and the challenges of life. But when Asaph came through the other side, His faith was more resilient than ever because it was a truer faith. It was more closely dialed into what the Bible itself says about the doctrine of the goodness of God. Yeah, and last week we talked about this issue a little bit, about how there's things that we are taught or that we, impressions that we gain that we find out to be not purely biblical. Uh, Asaph's story was similar. It was a deconstruction story in the sense that he stripped away some of the unbalanced and unscriptural notions he had about God's goodness, perhaps from his childhood. But Asaph's story was also a reconstruction story in the sense that he became more strongly convinced of scriptural truth than ever before. Yeah, that's right. And, And my story is similar to that. There's a deconstruction part to it early on in my life. But then, uh, praise the Lord, there's a reconstruction phase at the end. And so so I'm calling this episode my reconstruction story. And I know that, uh, you know, maybe there's some who would suggest that we shouldn't really point to ourselves and share our own experiences. We should just point others to the Lord. Um, So I want to just preface this episode with a little note about that. First of all, it is biblical to tell our stories. Psalm 73 is Asaph telling his story, and that's just one of many examples in the Bible. So it is biblical to do, I think, what I'm about to do. But secondly, whenever we do tell our stories, we want to make clear that we're wanting to point to the Lord. The story I'm about to tell you is not, profoundly not a story of how smart Mike Knox is to figure his way out of doubts, but it is the Lord's doing that brought me through. He held my hand just like he held Asaph's hand. So I actually want to tell this story to bring him glory. Well, I for one am looking forward to hearing your story, Mike. Now, Asaph's faith crisis related to God's goodness. That was the area that he was questioning. What was your own personal area of doubt? Mine was also a pretty core doctrine of the faith. Not the goodness of God, but the triunity of God. That's right. I had doubts about that the Trinity. Is a is a big thing to doubt, Mike. Like uh, this... <laughs> I think the Trinity is absolutely fundamental to the gospel, and historically the church has viewed the Trinity as very vital as well. It's fundamental to the Christian faith, and here you were you were questioning that. It is, and I was. So here's what I want to do. I want to tell you the story, and then at the end we'll come back and draw some lessons that I hope will help others too. 
because uh, not everyone will obviously struggle with the same things that I have. So, um, so starting with the story then, it has four parts. Uh, the first chapter of my story is the drinking it all in phase or chapter. So I grew up in a Christian home and in a Christian church. I heard that there's one God and three persons from an early age, and I just drank it all up. No doubts, no questioning. That's what we're like as little kids. We just believe what we hear and, and accept it. And I want to be clear that I'm so glad that I did. I often thank God for the wonderful truth I received from the pretty much the day I was born. I'm, I'm so thankful. I'm so fortunate to have had Christian parents and the teachers in the assembly that I had and the Sunday school teachers I had. And I'm so thankful for visiting preachers who came and they impacted me so much. At the same time, as I look back, I'll, I'll also say that some of the arguments and evidence I heard for the doctrine of the Trinity in my growing up years, they don't hold up. Some of them do, but some of them don't. Uh, just for a quick example, you know, an over-reliance on Genesis 1 and God saying, let us make man instead of saying, let me. Um, yeah, I'm not saying there's nothing to be said there for the doctrine of the Trinity, but it won't hold up under scrutiny as, as a sufficient evidence. Or, or arguing for the Trinity from the fact that the word for God, the word Elohim, is a plural word and yet it's used with a singular verb. I look back on some of these arguments now and recognize that they were weak, weak arguments for the right doctrine, but in themselves they didn't yeah, hold I mean, up. Yeah, those are both good examples. They can sort of encourage someone who has already appreciated the truth of the Trinity in a sense, but I mean the word Elohim, for example, you can't say that that means three, correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's used of of gods other than the God of the Bible, and uh, and so just the pattern of usage means that we can't read too much into a plural word used with yeah, a singular word. I think I have verb. I have one recording of G. Campbell Morgan preaching, and I believe he he talks about this great Hebrew word, and he says it refers to the plurality of majesty, which I appreciate. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's good. I mean, you're saying you were you were drinking all that in just as you were you were taught it um, it's fine what happened next well i went from the drinking it all in phase to a deconstructing phase as i got a little bit older i developed a, a personality that was prone to skepticism and doubts i remember you know being in my bedroom and and even though i knew i had locked the basement door i i i just doubted it and i needed to go check one more time and of course it now, was locked now you're making me paranoid some some <laughs> so, sometime in my early teens, I began to be exposed to strong criticisms and arguments against the Trinity. And many of these arguments were textual, as in they were based from the Bible. They had Bible verses to them. They were sophisticated. They made some strong points. And I knew that some of the evidence for the Trinity I'd heard couldn't hold up to these arguments I was hearing against it. And in that sense, I began to deconstruct. I no longer put weight on the faulty floorboards that were being exposed to me for what they were. Did I renounce my faith in the triune God? No, I didn't. But did I begin to have serious doubts about it? You bet I did. And it wasn't important to me to be able to understand the Trinity, to understand how God could be one and yet three at the same time. That didn't matter to me. All that mattered to me was whether the teaching was biblical or not. And that's what I really questioned. I mean, there's not a single verse in the whole Bible that says the word Trinity 
or that says there's one God and three persons, and there, there seem to be quite a few verses that, uh, at first at least, teach the opposite. And, you know, I, I knew that Jesus himself had said that the Father was greater than he was in John 14, 28, and that the Lord Jesus himself had called the Father the only true God in John 17, verse 3. And then you add in verses that call God the Father, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so on. And all of a sudden, I wasn't so sure about this Trinity teaching. And, you know, this isn't something that's easy to go vocal about, right? I mean, if you, uh, if you start saying that you're struggling with the doctrine of the Trinity, I mean, is the, is the church's security system going to start going off? People might call me a heretic or a blasphemer or a rebel. One memory sticks out to me uh, vividly. We had a visiting preacher with us, and he was at our house for supper that night. And I was pretty young. I'm not sure how young, but I was pretty young. And over the table, the preacher was saying that Jesus in the New Testament is Jehovah of the Old Testament. And I remember thinking, I'm not sure about that. I felt I had some pretty good arguments. I wish for I was there at that dinner table. I, I would have uh, I would have just liked to hear you <laughs> debate the preacher about it for a, a little while. But I know you're not there today, Mike, the same place you were there as a, as a young man doubting those things. Um, just for our listeners' information, the October issue of Truth and Tidings is, I think, part nine of Mike's series on the Trinity, and you've probably got a couple more yet to come. Do you, Mike? Yeah, I think I have four or five more. All right, so what, what began to turn you around in your thinking to where you are today? Yeah, so I went from the early infant sort of drinking it in stage to the deconstructing stage. And then um, my third chapter of the story is the doubting my doubts chapter. I began to doubt my doubts. Now, I got that phrase from Tim Keller years after this phase, but I'd already experienced it when I heard it. I began to doubt my doubts. So in my mid-teens and beyond, I began to get a trickle of teaching and evidence that made me really think that maybe there is more to the doctrine of the Trinity than the arguments and the biblical evidence I recalled hearing as a youth. And, and I guess this is what happens, right? When, when you get thinking about something, you start noticing things you'd never noticed before. Uh, if you're wanting to buy a lock for your bike, you start seeing bike locks everywhere. And, and it's the same. My faith in the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity was being challenged, so I, I started looking more. I became more interested in, in the evidence for this doctrine. And I found some in a few writers, especially at this time of my life, in the preaching and writings of David Gooding. There's, there's good reason why we often refer to him on this podcast. And I began to see from David Gooding and others like Gordon Fee and Robert Bowman, that there was some powerful evidence uh, that the New Testament does include Jesus in the identity. Yeah, would you of say, Yahweh. Mike, is it is it right to say, you know, maybe you wouldn't say Yahweh or Jehovah is Jesus, but Jesus is Yahweh, Jehovah? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, Matthew. Um, Jehovah isn't Jesus in the sense that um, the Lord Jesus exhausts who who Jehovah or Yahweh is, but the Lord Jesus is himself, Yahweh. Yeah, and there's even, I mean, there's a couple instances where it's clear that the reference to Yahweh doesn't refer to the Son, the Lord said to my Lord, for example. But yet there's also references that the New Testament makes it crystal clear that Jesus is the Lord, Yahweh. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right, Matthew, and, and we might come back to that. Uh, we'll just see how far we get in this episode here. 
Um, but anyways, I, I began to doubt my doubts. Maybe the doctrine of the Trinity isn't just some man-made invention in the centuries after the Apostle Paul. Maybe the early church reached the conclusions they did, not in spite of Scripture, but because of Scripture. And I began to see that it wasn't only some of the early childhood arguments that didn't hold up, that some of the counter-arguments didn't work either. So, to be honest, I began to straddle the fence a little bit. I could see evidence for and against. I couldn't bring myself to renounce the Trinity teaching, not, not in a long shot. But whenever I thought about wholeheartedly affirming the, the doctrine, there was a little piece of me that winced with doubt. Well, I appreciate that honesty, but nobody wants to remain a fence-sitter for too long, especially on something as vital as this. So how long were you straddling the fence? Well, for far too long. I'm ashamed of how long I spent in that, uh, in that place. But eventually, by God's grace, he brought me into the final chapter of this story, at least. I think this is the final chapter of the story. It's the reconstructing uh, chapter. For over 15 years, I doubted my doubts. But finally, God worked in my life to overcome my laziness and my lack of courage. And he gave me the desire to sort out once and for all whether the teaching that there was one God and three persons was a biblical teaching or an unbiblical teaching. And I was determined to come down on one side or other of that fence and face whatever the consequences would be. And so what I began to do was, was read human authors more widely and the Bible more deeply. I went back to David Gooding's writings, which are all available, by the way, at the Murderfield Trust website. And I went back to, you know, some of Gordon Fee's work and Robert Bowman and I read others too, some older writers from the early church and other scholars today like Richard Bauckham and Fred Sanders, David Capes and so on. And at the same time I started deep diving into some of the key Bible texts. And as I did this I had to work through the teaching kind of from scratch. I began to see why the early church formulated their understanding of how Jesus Christ relates to the Father and the Spirit the way they did. And I began to see that to understand one God and three persons was actually the only way we could do justice to what the Bible said. And, and so I began to wrestle with the arguments against the Trinity that had really shaken my faith before. And as I wrestled with those arguments one by one, I became more and more convinced that the biblical evidence was more than ready to, to face the challenge. Well, you mentioned biblical evidence, Mike. I know we're, we're nearing the end of this episode, but I, we still got a few minutes for sure. So you say you spent some years working through this. Could you give us one example uh, from the scriptures, something that helped confirm for you the truth of the Trinity? So just think about the famous passage in Philippians 2, for example, about the mind of Christ and, and how he humbled himself and died on, on the cross. And, and this is one of the passages I would have heard about in my deconstruction phase that put up lots of roadblocks for believing in the Trinity. Um, because an anti-Trinitarian would look at this text and say, well, well, look at this. I mean, God exalted Jesus. He gave him the name above all of the names so that everyone would bow to him. But, but it says that every knee would bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And, and so an anti-Trinitarian would say, look, there's no three in one here. Yeah, for sure, Jesus is very great, and he might even be divine in nature, but he, he's not as great as the one God, as the Father, because God exalts him. And one day people will bow to Jesus, but 
it will ultim- ultimately be to the glory of, of God the Father. Well, I'm just going to uh, try to do this fairly quickly, Matthew, but as I, as I submerged myself into this passage, it, it felt like uh, elements from, from the verses would, would sort of encircle me, you know, would swim around me like, like dolphins corral a school of fish into a column. And I noticed that these elements of the text swimming around, that there were two categories of them. And, and so there's one category that we can call sameness category, and the other is called difference category. They're, they're, in other words, there's pieces of the text that, that emphasize how the Lord Jesus is different from God. Um, it says God bestows a name on, on Jesus. Clearly, these are two different persons here, right? Uh, it's not like Speedy Gonzales, when he plays ping pong, he hits the ball on one end of the table and then he runs over to the other end of the table and hits it back to himself. <laughs> when God bestows a name on Jesus, there's clearly, in the text, there's this distinction. There's this person, God, and there's this other person, Jesus, and the one bestows a name on the other. And so, and so yeah, the, the passage is clearly making a difference between God and the Lord Jesus. And anti-Trinitarians would look at that and say, well, there you go. There's clearly no doctrine of the Trinity here. But what um, I began to notice is that there's a second category of, of features in the text. And that category, I said, is called the sameness category. In other words, there's other features in the text that don't show the difference between the Lord Jesus and God, that there's a distinction, but that show that there is a sameness, that there is an identification of Jesus as God. And so, uh, I'm gonna have to do this quickly. You can look at that Truth and Tidings article if you're wanting to dive into these things more. But um, it says in verse five that Jesus was in the form of God. And the verb there is he was being in the form of God. It, it talks about, in other words, his eternal preexistence. It says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And again, I don't have time to defend everything I'm saying here, but, but the, the idea is that he had equality with God. And so in the early verses of this passage, you have this, God, this Jesus who, who is eternally preexistent, who's in the very form of God, who the NIV says is in very nature God, who is equal to God. And then as you carry on through the text, he's given the name that is above every name. And as Gordon Fee would point out, this has to be the name Lord, the name Yahweh. He, he rightly bears the name of Yahweh. And then, just one more thing, um, when it talks about every tongue confessing and every knee bowing, it's, a, it's an echo, it's a quotation or an allusion to Isaiah 45 verse 23, where, where God, Yahweh of the Old Testament, the one God of Israel, is, is like all out defending how he is the one and only and there is no other God. And, and he says there, about every knee bowing and tongue confessing him. But now Paul says, actually, yeah, that's, that's fulfilled in every knee bowing and confessing Jesus as Lord. So Matthew, this is a speedy trip through, but what we have in this one text is, is both evidence that there is a distinction between the Lord Jesus and God, 
And at the very same time, there is a sameness, there is an identity, there is a oneness between Jesus and God. And so uh, the earlier church would look at this and conclude that God is one in being, in nature. There is one God, but yet there is a distinction within God in that there are multiple persons. There are three persons in one God. That's a hurried look. You can read the article for more. You can go way, way deeper into this. But this is just an example of how I, I sat in a Bible passage for a while. And any time I tried to venture out towards unorthodoxy, you know, if I, if I tried to say, well, actually, uh, the Son isn't as great as God, well, then all these features of the text would come swimming around me and say, no, you can't go there. Uh, Jesus is eternally preexistent. He's of the very nature of God. He's equal with God. He has God's name. He fulfills Isaiah 43. He's, he's, he's identified with God. And, uh, and so every time I try to venture out and say anything other than the doctrine of the Trinity, the passage would correct me. But I found the passage was corralling me. It was shepherding me into the confession of the triune God that the church has always confessed. Well, you sound very confident in your position now, Mike. Thank you. It's helpful. Uh, what would be some lessons you would like to leave with our listeners from your journey? Yeah, well, the first one is one we've said before, but it's worth saying again. Number one, you're not alone. If you start asking around, you'll find all kinds of people in Christ Church today who have wrestled with doubts. You're not alone. And then, second lesson is know that there are times of your life when you're especially vulnerable. For a lot of us, it's our teenage years. One factor of this is just the simple truth that our bodies are changing and our, our emotions, we're vulnerable emotionally and maybe we're not as good at thinking through things clearly. There's a lot going on in our internal development in this stage of our life. And then for me, and this might be you too, um, you couple that vulnerable time with a personality that's inclined to doubt and suspicion. Uh, I'm naturally skeptical in, in some ways, and that, you know, kind of was one more ingredient in, in the mix. And then two more ingredients that were really powerful and made this a really volatile time for me was one, um, just a very superficial understanding of the evidence for the teaching of the Trinity. I, I was just sort of I'd only maybe heard fairly weak arguments for it. And then you combine that with some really, really high-powered arguments against it, and, and you can see that I was in a very vulnerable mm. position. So, Mike, teens today listening to this, maybe they're not wrestling with the doctrine of the Trinity, but there could be some other aspect of Christian truth uh, that they're having a hard time processing. I mean, it could be the Christian teaching on sexuality, and they're feeling lots of pressure from the culture uh, on this subject to throw out the Bible's teaching or to radically reinterpret the Bible's teaching. And there's people in the name of Christ who are reinterpreting the teaching in a very radical way. So it's possible you're listening and you're having some major doubts about whether what you have heard from your Bible teachers, what they have said that the Bible teaches on the subject of sex, you're wondering, is that really what the Bible's teaching about it? Well, consider that you may be being bombarded by sophisticated arguments against what you were taught, and maybe you're just not well-equipped at the moment to counter those arguments. Maybe you've only learned some more basic or very simple arguments for the Christian teaching, and, and you feel like the situation's kind of lopsided. 
but what you're saying, Mike, I gather, is just because someone has grown up in the church, that doesn't mean that they've been taught everything they need to know in order to counter the winds of opposition that may be blowing against a particular truth. It's not so much saying that there was something wrong with how they were brought up, but maybe now they are encountering some opposition that their teachers weren't prepared for themselves. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really good way of putting it, and I think this is something extremely important. Uh, we can think, you know what, I've grown up under Bible teaching all my life, and I'm now being exposed to arguments I've never thought through or heard of before, and they're really challenging me. And we might think, because I've spent all my life hearing Christian teaching, I've been exposed to everything the faith has, right? To, to counter what I'm being challenged on right now. And, and obviously, the Christian faith doesn't have answers for this, but that would be a wrong assumption. It is very, very possible that uh, we've heard and been taught great things, but we still need to do some more digging. And so I'm, I'm going to the verse in Jude, verse 20, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. You can uh, give episode 49 a re-listen to by Thomas Seal. There's times in our life where we encounter opposition and, and we need to learn more. The, the church has faced opposition before, and Christ has given us men and women who have thought through these things before, and they've put what they found down onto paper, and, and if you have someone in your life who reads and who's thought through some things and they've been on the road longer than you, you can ask them, you know, is there something I can read? Is there somewhere I can go to uh, equip myself to think through what I'm struggling with better? So read more and, and read deeper. So uh, third lesson I want to draw is as a people, we need to learn to welcome questions without being offended by them or, or, or without becoming overly defensive. And I know, I think this is something we've talked about a little bit already, Matthew, but I just want to say it again, um, that it's really important how we respond to people when they have questions. If you're the type of person that faith comes easy for you, you might not be the best person to help someone who's struggling. I think the reason why David Gooding helped me so much in his writing and sermons it was because he took the objections seriously. He didn't just toss them away. He, he didn't imply that, you know, believing in the Trinity is just like clicking your fingers and it's so easy, it's so clear, it's so obvious, you'd have to be dumb not to see this. No, he took the objections really carefully. He worked through the questions biblically and deeply, and that's what really helped. So, so let's learn as a people to take questions, especially of, of youth, to take them really seriously. And we, we both said earlier in the series that God is up to the challenge, right? I just want to um, raise the bar a little bit on that one. He's not just up to the challenge. He's like, he's super up to the challenge. I never would have come to understand the doctrine of the Trinity with the conviction and the certainty that I now have had I not been exposed to serious doubts and objections. And, and it was only because I was provoked by these tough arguments that that I was forced to work through it so carefully and and to work through it text by text. And so, what am I saying here? I'm saying that not only God was God able to bring me through those challenges, but He actually turned those challenges and those doubts to serve His purpose. In other words, He actually made me stronger. He, I didn't just survive, 
but but I came through with a far deeper and, and truer grasp of of this doctrine. And now I, I feel God has providentially called me to help others who might be struggling with it, right? To help others through their doubts. And so I'm I'm writing about it. I'm teaching it. And as I look back, I think, wow, you know, God just what He wasn't just up to the challenge, but He actually He actually uh, super abounded over this challenge and and I hope has made me just a little voice of, of someone who will help others uh, with their struggles with this truth. One more lesson, Matthew, is that the truth isn't just more true, it's also more beautiful. And uh, I realize that we rushed our time in Philippians 2, but earlier this year I took our family to Niagara Falls and we paid the exorbitant fees to be able to go behind the falls. And uh, if you've ever been there, you'll know there's sort of two cutouts uh, in the rock cliff where you can go through a tunnel and you can see the falls from behind the falls. And uh, Philippians 2 gives us sort of a, an example of this too. It, it affords us a view behind the falls. Calvary was uh, a great cataract, a great waterfall of judgment, of love, and of grace. And here, through the inspired pen of Paul, we are able to, uh, can I say this reverently, to climb into the mind of Christ. I think Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, to enter the mind of Christ and, and to look out through his eyes, to, to, to look at the cataract of love from behind the falls. And what happens when we do this? What do we find? We find that from the cross, the Lord Jesus was looking at us and, and from the words of the text, he was counting our lives more significant than his own. He was putting our eternal well-being and destiny ahead of himself. He was saying, I value uh, your eternal need and well-being more than my own life, more than my own comfort and, and well-being. He was putting us before himself. And so I just want to throw that in, that not only did I discover after landing very firmly on the truth of the Trinity, I didn't only discover that the truth is more true, but it's also more beautiful. That orthodoxy is, is compellingly uh, beautiful. Well, we are thankful for the faithfulness of God, for sure. And we're thankful for how he has worked in your life, Mike. And thanks very much for sharing that today. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. Our next two episodes are going to be with a guest. We've got Vincent Kember from Ottawa who's going to help us work towards a theology of government or our view of government. And we hope that you will tune into those two interesting episodes as well. In the meantime, may you continue to enjoy the Lord's blessings and goodness.